You know, God just doesn't use someone like me or you to do big things. I mean, those jobs are left to the impressive and the gifted, right? I love you guys, but you're no King David. You're just not. David was a leader of leaders. He was Israel's greatest king. I mean, who of us could expect to do things like that? Or who of us could uh, be used by God to lead a million slaves out of captivity from Egypt, like Moses did? I don't know about that. Or could speak into the ear of the most powerful person in the world, like Queen Esther. Or like the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was the greatest missionary of all time. They have that some kind of something that we, you know, when you think about our parents and the genetics, we got the flabby hips. We're either too short or too tall. I, we didn't do that well in school. We can't speak well. We're just... Ordinary. I love, though, when I look at the Bible at how honest it is and user-friendly it is. It doesn't create myths out of men. In fact, it gives us all of the gory details about their lives. Many of them came from humble beginnings. I think of King David. He was Jesse's eighth son who Jesse didn't even remember he had when Samuel came into the house to anoint the Lord's next king. And he says, do you have another son? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, David, out in the field. Ah, don't worry about him. Or Moses, who was sent in a basket down a river because he was destined to be killed. Or Esther, who was a captive, Or what about as you look at their lives and you see that they struggled with sin just like we did? David made significant leadership mistakes that cost people their lives because of his sin. Esther had to be strong-handed by Mordecai to go and speak to the king. Moses said, Lord, I don't even want to go, didn't he? And Paul, the persecutor turned missionary. Nehemiah reminds me of someone that I can be like. He reminds me that God uses everyday, ordinary people to carry out his mission. He works through the weak, the insignificant, the oppressed, even the incapable to go and do uh, beyond anything that we could ask or think or imagine. You know, Nehemiah, for example, is a guy who was born into captivity. And these people had been in captivity for quite some time, so that means that his parents were captives. He was a captive. And his children, if he had children, they were captives too. But God used him to be a great leader for this ragtag bunch of exiles and to help reconstitute them as a nation so that they would be the people that brought glory to God's name. His leadership, though, began humbly. He asked a simple question, and he prayed a big prayer. He was a cupbearer who God then led to become a wall builder, who then he would lead to become a governor. Nehemiah 
what we learn from him is that he just takes faithful steps along the way. And we see the impact that a life can have when it's wholly surrendered to God and his ways. Nehemiah leads where he is. He's a man that God can use. And so the question I have for you this morning as we think about this text that we will be looking at is are you someone that God can use? So if you would, let's open up our Bibles. We'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 1. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, uh, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn that to page 398. And we're going to make our way through this first chapter. We'll read it and then we'll identify four characteristics of the person that God can use. So let's read Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, excuse me. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, uh, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So let's look at four principles about the person that God can use from this text. The first we see is that the person God can use doesn't shy away from the problem. This was probably just a normal day in the life of Nehemiah. We get some inclination of the day and age. It's the months of Kislev, which is around December. It's the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which means we're around 446 B.C., 
He is living in Susa, which is the capital of the Median Persian Empire. It's kind of like our Washington, D.C. today, only a bigger deal because this was the empire of the known world. A lot of authority and power and decision-making coming out of here. Now, the end of the chapter tells us that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. I know what you think when you hear a, oh, a title like that. You probably think, well, he's the king's guinea pig. You know, he drinks the wine or eats the food, and he just drops dead like a canary, and they sweep him along to the side and bring someone else in. Kind of doesn't sound like a role I would want in an empire. But actually, they didn't drop dead that often. And his role was a little more important than that. I mean, I think you can imagine with me the level of trust that would be built up between these two people. The king is relying on Nehemiah, right? With his life. Historians would say that the cupbearer held great political influence. It was a position of prominence, influence, and comfort. So here he is in this prominent role, and it's just a normal day. And yet, through one conversation, Nehemiah's life would change forever. Warren Wiersbe writes, Like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. You never know what God has in store for your life. You never know what he's doing in the midst of a conversation, a normal conversation that you're just having with a friend or a relative, or one night when he lays something upon your heart and you simply pursue it in prayer, what God can do. You see, God works in these hinge moments, as I call them. If we open our heart, if we're looking at what he's doing in the world, Sometimes our life can be radically changed. We're going about life normally as is. Then that conversation happens, that prayer happens, that event happens, and suddenly we can no longer go back and be the same person that we were before. Maybe you've had one of those hinge moments in your life. Nehemiah's hinge moment came through a question. Look at verses 2 and 3. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Why would Nehemiah ask that question? He has a cushy, comfortable job. Isn't it easier sometimes just not to ask questions? Well, he asks that type of question that's going to mess up his life greatly because Nehemiah is the type of person that God can use. He's a leader. I think that there have been some marvelous books written on leadership in the last hundred years or so. Great books. I think of uh, Carnegie's book. I think of uh, the seven highly effective ha- or habits of highly effective people. I think of Good to Great with Jim Collins. John Maxwell has written tons on leadership. 
But there is no greater book on leadership than the Bible. They're all taking their cues from what God's Word says. Um, I just marvel every time I read one of these books, I can think of a story or a scripture that aligns with this and they're drawing it from there. So as we make our way through the book of Nehemiah, I think there will be many leadership principles that we will derive as we're looking through the text. And I'd like to share one with you right now. The first leadership principle I see is that leaders want to know the state of reality. Good, bad, ugly, a leader wants to know things as they really are. They're not turning a blind eye. They're not sticking their head in the sand like an ostrich. They're not in some white ivory tower pontificating about the problems of the world. Leaders want to ask questions. They want to know the state of reality, even if what they're going to hear is not what they want to hear. How often and easy it is to go on with our comfy, cushy, cozy lives and pretend like nothing's happening. I've seen it. I've done it. I told you, I'm not very auto-mechanically inclined. I like to drive my cars even when I'm hearing things that I shouldn't be hearing and I'm steering the car and it's not steering in the way that it should. And I just say to myself, you know, whenever I get a bump or a bruise, it just heals, so this is going to be okay, right? My mechanic gives me a much different story. Facts do not cease to exist because we ignore them. That's the truth. Facts do not cease to exist because we ignore them. I think of certain facts for me that are hard to ignore. A couple of years ago as a church, we were asking the question, how many people living here on Cape Cod are an evangelical Christian? Now, an evangelical Christian, uh, by definition, is someone who professes to have a conversion experience by grace through faith in Christ, and also believes in the importance of telling other people about that life-giving message of Jesus. So here's some startling statistics. If you look at Massachusetts and ask how many evangelical Christians we have in this state, 2%. Uh, in New England, our surrounding states and us included, uh, we are the least reached area in the country. Massachusetts is second least in the country. If you look at our own area, Barnstable, uh, Yarmouth, some of you have heard this statistic before, 1.5% evangelical. Missiologists have labeled people groups unreached or least reached when they are at that 2% level or less. But I think there's another important benchmark or measure uh, that we need to think about as a church. This benchmark has to do with churches to population. So if the local church is God's missional engine, if God is placing little ministry outposts all over the world through his local church, it would be very important that an area would have enough local churches in order to advance the gospel. They say that a healthy ratio of local churches to population in a non-urban context, which we happen to occupy, is one church to 500 people. You want to know what it is here? 
one church to every 8,889 people, which means that we are at about 5% of the local churches that we need to have here. You think to yourself, that's too big of a problem. 98.5% of the people don't really know Jesus and there's not enough churches to reach them? That's an immense magnitude problem. Nehemiah heard a big problem. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by people. Here's the truth. You can't fix that problem. You can't. You can't go up to a single person who has turned their heart away from God and change them. But God can. And the more that we realize that, the more that we realize that He can, the more we'll see the truth of Ephesians 3.20 realized. He can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. God can use you to rebuild the broken walls of this world if you would align your life with His power and with His plan. He can use you to rebuild broken families. He can use you to rebuild a broken area that hasn't heard the gospel. He can use you to engage in social justice issues like the human trafficking epidemic that is happening around the world. Heart-rending. He can use you and he can rebuild the broken walls in your own heart, in your own spiritual life. With God, the rebuilding process can happen. But he's got to do something in us first in order for us to go on mission for him. And see, the second thing we see here is that the person God can use gets broken over the problem. He breaks our hearts. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Another leadership principle here is that leaders see the world through God's eyes. I think of a friend that I met in seminary. His name was Brian. Brian was an amazing guy in my mind. He was in his late 50s. He had just entered into seminary and his kids were out of the house and God had placed this call on his life. Brian began as a carpenter. He felt called to go into the local schools. He was a woodshop teacher. And God introduced later in his life one of those hinge moments. One of Brian's friends was a prison chaplain. And he said to Brian, you need to go to jail. Have you guys ever been to jail? Don't everyone raise your hand. <laughs> Brian accepted that call. He had asked Brian to come in and preach the gospel, and I don't know if you've ever been to jail. I have. Uh, but when you step in, there is an intimidation about stepping into that room. As you look out at the people that you're talking to and you're thinking in your head, that guy's engaged in something. <laughs> whether it's theft or uh, drug dealing or even 
heinous things, looking out at potentially a murderer. Brian said that as he was beginning to preach the gospel, that that was just going through his mind over and over again. But then as he continued to give the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, God changed his vision. And he looked out, and he saw a room full of guys that Jesus came to this earth and died for. And God broke his heart. He would say that from there, it was four days consecutive that he could not stop weeping and praying for men and women in the prison system. The more they came to his mind, the more that he cried, and the more that he cried, the more he knew God was calling him to preach the gospel to this particular cross-section of people. The state of the exiles in Jerusalem had the same effect on Nehemiah. Nehemiah, when I think about him, he's kind of like your man's man. I mean, he gets things done in this book. He's not afraid to take a problem head on. He speaks his mind directly. I love him. But he's also a man who isn't afraid to cry. God has given us emotions for a reason. Your emotions were never meant to be stuffed and sat upon. God uses our emotions for the sake of his glory. Now, we've certainly seen emotions used in the wrong way. People excusing bad behavior because they were mad or something along those lines. But when our emotions are rightly aligned with God's heart, it's like an impetus that sends us out to act for his glory. Has God broken your heart for people? as the news reels are playing the bad news. You feel desensitized right now? As you hear all the sad things that are happening in this world. Maybe a couple of years ago you were with us when we were talking about that percentage, 1.5% evangelical, and you think to yourself, I've already heard that. We're, we're past that now. If God can use you, or if you will be the person that he can use, you have to open your heart to the facts. You have to let them wound it. And then, after he has wounded your heart, you have to know where you take that wounded heart. Nehemiah knew. See, the other thing that we see here is that the person God can use prays about the problem. He took that wounded heart to the place where he could receive salve, God. When you understand the scope of the problem, you will pray. When you recognize that the problem is God-sized, you will pray. When you say to yourself in your heart, there's no one that's too lost, no one that's too far gone for God's redemptive grace, you will pray. Nehemiah heard about the broken wall and he prayed and he continued to pray. When you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, you might read these stories and think that he just simply prayed one day after hearing this and then went on and talked to the king. But no, the dates add up to about four months. So here's this get things done kind of guy, this man of decisive action. Four months praying, bringing his wounded heart to God. 
And as you look through the 13 chapters of this book, you see that Nehemiah prays 12 times. It's recorded 12 times. He's constantly lifting things up to God as he is pursuing God's plans. Leadership principle number three. Leaders pray because they're dependent on God. The person that God can use is dependent. You're calling to God to receive orders from on high. The leader doesn't go forward with their followers. Oftentimes they're saying, wait, wait. We need to hear from God before we do anything at all. I love the life of Jesus, the greatest leader who ever lived. Life of dependence. John chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus is the ideal human, the ideal leader, the model to us for how we are supposed to operate in this life. And He is walking in lockstep with the Father. The greatest people in the Bible walk in lockstep with the Father. People that God has used greatly throughout the course of Church history, there's this correlation between their prayer life and the impact that they have in this world. Dependence causes us to be the type of person that God can use. Now, I want you to notice how he prays. I think there's three important aspects of this prayer. The first is that his prayer was worshipful. He praises. Look at verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, worship must always come before transformation and mission. Why does worship come first? You are not going to pray God-sized prayers if you don't have a high view of God. If you're looking out at problems in this world and you're saying to yourself, that's too big for God, you don't know him. You don't understand who he is. You don't know what he has done in this world. Nehemiah prays to a great God with great power and great goodness and great mercy. He's talking to the creator God of the universe. The God who spoke everything into existence. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so as he prays, all of the problems that he's looking at are small. Building a wall, small. Approaching the most powerful man in the world, small. Reconstituting these exiles, small. 98.5%, small. Your view of God will change how you interact with the world who you fear, and what you believe God can accomplish through your life. I love when I look at verse 11. Look there with me for a minute. Nehemiah is talking about Artaxerxes. <laughs> and Artaxerxes, most powerful man in the world, he says someone's head gets lobbed off. It gets lobbed off. And Nehemiah says, grant your servant mercy in the sight of who? This man. All of a sudden, the most powerful man in the world has shrunk. 
insignificance. Why? Because he's pretentious and arrogant? No. Because he's comparing him to the God of the universe. And Artaxerxes is just that. He's a man and nothing more. Worship puts things into their proper perspective. I want you to notice something else. Nehemiah takes personal responsibility for the problem. He brings the problem before God and he confesses his own part to play in the problem. Look at the pronouns in verses 6 and 7. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't talk about they. He doesn't defer the blame. He doesn't talk about that foggy notion of they that we are always talking about. You know, if they would just get their act together, then this place would get a lot better, wouldn't it? He uses a first-person personal pronoun. We, I, me, my family. He's taking responsibility. He's confessing to God. I've done a lot of reading on leadership. I'm very interested in what God does in the lives of leaders and how he raises them up and how he uses them for the sake of his glory. One of the better books that I've read is by a man named Robert Clinton, and he wrote a book called The Making of a Leader. He kind of traces in this book spiritual leaders who God had used greatly and what that developmental process looked like in their lives. Now, in one um, end of the coin, you can look at a leader's training program and see that it's very unique. You know, God presents each one of us with different challenges and responsibilities, and he kind of does his work in us so that we will step out in faith and meet those things. But on the other side of the coin, you can also see that there's this growth or development process that really seems to be transferable in the life of leaders. There's this early process, there's a, a maturing process, and then there's this process called convergence where God takes all of your gifts and your skills and your abilities and he causes them to converge so that you would be most highly effective as you use them. When looking at the early phase, what is God accomplishing there? He is building within us godly character. You see, great leaders almost to a person would say that the bedrock or the building block of leadership has to do with character. Henry Martin has said this, let me be taught that the first great business on earth is the sanctification of my own soul. D.L. Moody would refer to character in this way. Character is what a man is in the dark or I've also heard it put like this, it's who you are when no one is looking. I love what Warren Wiersbe says, perhaps the key word is integrity. No amount of reputation can substitute for character. And we've all seen people who have gained influence based upon reputation. But if that bedrock of character was missing, they fall. Character. Why does the leadership process begin here? I think it's what Roy Baldwin talked about last week. You cannot give away what you do not have. If you are not a person of character, you cannot be used by God to accomplish his plans and his purposes. 
not in the degree in the fashion that you could otherwise be. Here's another thing about character, though, in our God. He is so gracious. There's plenty of opportunities in my life where God has given me a test to demonstrate character, and you know what I've done? Failed. Miserably. But he's so gracious because he gives us other opportunities to demonstrate it once again and to start building that bedrock. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's confessing. He's saying, God, start with me. Make me the person that you can use. And then he does the next thing. And he prays to claim the promises of God. I love that when I look at this. He's willing to claim the promises of God. So he starts off with this prayer. He's worshiping God. He's saying that I'm personally responsible. Make me the person that I should be. And then he claims the promises of God. Look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. What is he doing there as he's talking about the words of Moses? He's quoting scripture to God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. What was the promise? Well, it was twofold. And one end, the promise was that if you disavow me, if you get into idolatry, if you start leading a life that is anti-God, then I will send you off into exile and you will be captives. And that part of the promise has come in has come true. But the other part of the promise is that when the time of captivity was over, that God would bring the Jewish people back to Jerusalem and he would protect them. So Nehemiah is praying here and he's saying, God, the first part of the promise has happened. We've turned away from you. But I want to see the second part of the promise happen now. I'm claiming your promise. God does not make promises randomly. He doesn't make a promise lightly. I believe that God makes his promises because he wants to give us opportunities to step out in faith and trust him. Think about Abraham's life. Abraham was just given a promise of a son and then of a blessing that would come through him. And all that he had to do was just simply keep going, right, about life and just wait for God to deliver upon the promise. Paul reflects on this in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. He says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Brothers and sisters, what is a promise that we can claim? I mean, when you think about something like 1.5% evangelical, when you think about a ratio of one church to every 8,889 people, what's a promise we can claim? I think of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus declares, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise that we entrust the work of the local church to Christ and into God and we're faithful to do what the church is supposed to do, that it will advance. Are you willing to claim that promise of God? Are you willing to step out in faith and realize the fulfillment of that promise of God? 
we worship a God who's bigger than the problem. Immensely bigger. And so if we trust ourselves to him, if we say, yes, Lord, I will claim that promise, I believe that he will do great things through this church, this local gathering. Look at another thing with me. The person God can use says, I'm available, God. Use me. Look at verse 11, what Nehemiah prays. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I'm sure that you've heard the quote, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, right? So notice that Nehemiah's prayer doesn't go something like this. God, boy, I've got a lot to lose here. I mean, prominence, prestige, influence. There's a lot of other exiles that don't have this much to lose. And they're probably better at building walls. Would you please send one of them? Chuck Swindoll says it well. Prayer that gets the job done includes the conviction, I'm available, Lord, Use me. Leadership principle number four. Leaders are the first, not the second, not the third, not the last, the first to make themselves available. Is that the prayer in your heart as you think about the God-sized problems in your life? Are you calling out to God and saying, God, not only do I recognize that there's a problem, not only do I recognize that you are much bigger than the problem, but I also recognize that I need to be a part of the solution. Here am I. I'm available, God. Use me. I've entitled this series, Lead Where You Are. Because God uses everyday, ordinary people who are wholly surrendered to himself and he accomplishes great things through them. Nehemiah, he asks a question. He listens. He prays. And then he says, I'm available. He moves from being a cupbearer to a wall builder to a governor of the people. And God uses him to take a ragtag bunch of exiles and to rebuild a national identity with his glory at the center of it. Ephesians 3.20, he can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine according to his power that is within you. Now, it's not some power that naturally arises out of you. It is the spirit of God that he will do immeasurably more through you with. That's a promise from the scriptures. What does a life look like that claims this promise? It looks awesome. I think one of the best places that I've ever gained perspective on this has been at a funeral. When you get to see the the scope of a life and what God has done through a person. Two Saturdays ago, I was blown away when I heard about the life of Dawn Gage, uh, Paul Gage's sister. Um, Paul is one of our elders here. And God, wow, did great things through Dawn's life. I want to read to you just a little excerpt of her obituary in case you weren't there to hear all that God had done in and through her. Um, 
When she had graduated the Stony Brook, uh, Brook School of New York, she stated in her yearbook her ambition for her life, to be an orphanist, one who owns or has a great deal to do with an orphanage for very small children. And she would later win the Alumni Achievement Award for, fil- for fulfilling that dream. So Dawn, um, as she was pursuing God, as she was leading where she was, she began by going to Texas Christian University. She got her bachelor's there and also a call from God to the nations. She responded to that call um, by teaching missionary children in Paraguay as a journeyman for two years. Following that, she would go and receive her master's of divinity degree in 1989. She would move to China with two classmates to teach English And she spent free time caring for children at the welfare center and fostering several of the first babies that would be adopted from Nanning. Now, as she was doing this, God started giving her a dream that that quote from her yearbook could be accomplished, that even here in communist China, God could do great things in and through her. So she followed that dream and she founded Livingstone's Village in 1998 to provide for 63 older handicapped orphans who were unlikely to be adopted. And as we were at that service, one of Dawn's children stood up and shared her heart about the impact that Dawn had had in her life. And just to think of those precious humans that she could look out with and see them through the eyes of Jesus Christ, be attentive to their needs daily, and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And it just poured from this young girl's heart. She talked about her. There were a couple of themes that I saw in her life as I heard it talked about. She saw a problem, orphans. She felt broken over it. She prayed, major theme of Dawn's life, prayer, that dependence on God. And she said, here am I. I'm available. Use me. And God would send her to communist China to start an orphanage and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to these orphans. Yet there was another thing that struck me too, to hear Paul talk about her. To Paul, Dawn was big sister. (laughs) She was ordinary. She didn't have any special genetics. In fact, when she was at Stony Brook, she struggled through Spanish class and then God would send her to China to learn Cantonese and Mandarin. I don't know if you guys have ever interacted with those languages before. Oh my goodness. She knew a God who was bigger than her shortcomings and bigger than any of the obstacles that she would face. Dawn was a person who was willing to lead where she is. This is the challenge of the book of Nehemiah, church. Are you willing to lead where you are? Are you willing to be the person that God can use to wholly surrender your life to him so that he can do immeasurably more than you could even think to ask? Well, if you are, pray with me. Let's pray together.